the keynote speaker that we have with us tonight is Dr. Melinda Zeter. Uh, she's a senior scientist and curator of old world archaeology in the Department of Anthropology of the National Museum of Natural History, the Smithsonian Institution. A remarkable person who uh, also uh, is the chair of the Wiener Laboratory Committee of the American Schools Managing Committee. Uh, she's, uh, she led the keynote and uh, address when we opened up uh, the Wiener Lab, and it's just an honor and privilege for us to have her, her with us tonight. And we also have uh, Panayotis Karkanis, who is the Takis Karkanis, who is the director of the Wiener Lab with us tonight as well. So please, without further ado, let's hear it uh, for Mindy Zeter. Well, thank you, George, for that very nice introduction, and thank you all for coming out here on this kind of chilly evening. hope we can warm you up with what we're going to talk about tonight, because it's really a, a huge pleasure to share with you some of the highlights of the accomplishments that the Wiener Lab for Archaeological Science has made over the last 25 years since its inception, and I hope to be able to demonstrate to you tonight that these accomplishments have been really transformational in terms of our understanding of the ancient Greek world. Um, this Wiener Laboratory oops, was established um, in 1992 with the generous support from the Malcolm H. Wiener Foundation, um, and its mission was to promote the application of the archaeological sciences to the understanding of the history and the prehistory of the ancient Greek world. And its primary vehicle for doing this is through sponsored research, primarily in the form of fellowships that are granted in four major target areas of scientific endeavor. Now, currently, the Wiener Lab sponsors a three-year postdoctoral fellowship a two-year pre-doctoral fellowship, a number of research associate appointments, and very excitingly, we've just created this year a new programmatic fellowship that we'll be talking about a little bit at the end of the um, my presentation tonight. Over the last 25 years, the Wiener Lab and the school sponsored over 115 different research projects. Um, and I won't talk about each and every one of them tonight, so no fears, but I will try to cover the basics. But it's really been an amazing uh, endeavor that has supported researchers from around the world. And you can see that we've got almost every continent covered. We just need somebody from South America and maybe a penguin or two from Antarctica to come and do work with us. Now, when we look at the distribution of these projects over our four target areas, you can see a lot of them fall into this study of human skeletal remains. Um, a, an impressive, a little bit smaller number in what we call environmental studies, and this includes the study of archaeobotany, the study of plant remains from archaeological sites, study of organic residues, and other uh, sort of markers of past environments. My own field, archaeozoology, or zooarchaeology, if you will, the study of animal bones from archaeological sites, and Taki's field, geoarchaeology, which has most of the applications and most of the grants. Uh, and this is, includes both the sort of geomorphological study of big landscapes, as well as a very close-up study of the microstratigraphy uh, within archaeological sites, as well as material science studies. Now, when we look at the distribution of these fields over time and over this large timeline, we can break this timeline into uh, basic chronological chunks. First of all, the Paleolithic, which looks like an interesting time to be around in. 
the Neolithic, which looks like a lot of work, uh, the Bronze Age, Minoan, Mycenaean periods, Iron Age, Classical, Hellenistic, and going into the Byzantine and Medieval periods. Now, what I want to do for you tonight is to take these chunks of time and really showcase some of the wonderful Wiener Lab research that has taken place in each of these time periods that has succeeded in addressing really central questions about them, about Greece and its relationship to the rest of the ancient world. So let's start first with this Paleolithic period. One of the basic questions for paleoanthropology concerns hominin dispersals. That's hominins are humans and our near ancestors out of Africa and through Eurasia. And when you look at the distribution of the dispersal patterns of two of our more recent hominins, both modern humans on the bottom and then Neanderthals on the top, you can see that there's a great deal of sort of geographic overlap in their distributions, especially in Europe. Not only is there a geographic distribution, but we're getting more and more archaeological evidence that points to that these two species actually were, had a great degree of interaction, including a mounting amount of ancient DNA analysis that is pointing to a certain degree of very close communication in terms of interbreeding, so making love and not war between the two species. Now, if you also look at this distribution, you'll see a very central place for this crossroads of these dispersals and a major place for their adaptation and interaction, which just happens to be Greece. There are a number of wonderful cave sites across Greece with have hugely deep cultural deposits that go back 130,000 years or more. Uh, just remarkable records of this dispersal period and ad adaptation. And the Wiener Lab has been prominent in their research at each and every one of these caves. And what I'm doing here, and I'll do this as a device throughout the talk, is that I'm featuring different Wiener Lab-sponsored projects, the name of the uh, excavator or the, the PI on the project, the years of the project, the title of the project, and then I'm color-coding them for your convenience. So blue is geoarchaeology, yellow environmental studies, red zooarchaeology, uh, and beige, when you see it, will be human skeletal studies. When we look at this research at one of these caves in particular, this Theopetra cave, it really underscores the value of having these different disciplines coming together and cross-illuminating to look at, in this case, problems of what was the paleoenvironmental context for human dispersal, adaptation, and interaction. The work of Takis Karkanis, who will be speaking after me, has taken on the really challenging um, uh, job of sorting out this very complicated stratigraphy of the cave, figuring out which are the strata that represent human occupation, that are interlaced with human um, abandonment, um, and then putting all of these in a very tight chronological framework. Maria Natinu's study of the um, the carbonized wood from the cave has succeeded in being able to reconstruct the forests and how they changed with different climatic events that sort of set the context for these periods of occupation and abandonment. Georgia Sartsadu's study of opal phytolus. Now these are, these are these wonderful little glass bodies that appear in plants. They're very resistant to decay, so when the plant decays in the soil, the opal phytolus stay there. Maybe up to, actually, people have done it from the time so the dinosaur have been able to recover these things. And healthfully for us, their shape is distinctive to species. So Georgia has been able to take these microfossils and identify them to species, 
augment the work done on paleoclimate with the wood charcoal, and also look at human uses of these plant uh, materials, both for dietary needs and for non-dietary needs. Caterina Papiani's study of the microvertebrates, these are things like mice and bats and shrews. This again has added to our picture of the changing climates, as well as looking at the growing relationship between these species and humans in these anthropogenic environments, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. All of this work then comes together to really enliven our picture of the lives of these people, going back, you know, 100 years, 100,000 years or more, really looking at how they coped with this very changing, um, uh, challenging, changing climate, uh, the environments, and how they interacted with one another. Now, the Neolithic period, another huge threshold in human history, has also been prominent in Wiener Lab research. We now know that the dispersal, or that the origin of the Neolithic in Europe was through dispersal, through colonization of Europe by farming populations originating originally in the Near East and bringing with them domesticated crops and livestock. The first evidence of this dispersal goes all the way back to 8,500 BC uh, on Cyprus, and then we see it showing up at the far reaches of the Anatolian Plateau at about 7,000 years ago. Now, this first dispersal, um, it uses Anatolia as its sort of jumping off point, and it's characterized by an emphasis in sheep. We see it showing up at Knossos at about 7,000 um, BC as well, and then becoming really firmly established in mainland Greece between 65 and 6,000 BC. And then from there, it just explodes across the Mediterranean in a process of what's called leapfrog colonization, reaching the shores of the Atlantic shores of the, uh, the Iberian Peninsula at about 5,400 BC. Now, at the same time, there's another dispersal pulse, this one originating in northwestern Anatolia and characterized by a signature emphasis on cattle. And this one then goes across the Bosporus and into the Balkans in northern Greece at about the same time as the southern dispersal. And from there it picks up steam and races across the lust plains of central Europe, reaching the coast of what's now modern France at about 5,000 BC, taking a little pause before it crosses the English Channel into Britain and up into Scandinavia. Now, once again, if you'll notice this map, the key area for looking at these dispersal pulses and how they came together just happens to be Greece. And once again, the Wiener Lab is helping tell the story. Katerina Papiani's study, uh, and I mentioned her work earlier, now she's looking at the house mouse, the lowly house mouse, and she's using it as a kind of a radioactive tracer of these dispersal movements, because it turns out that there are two subspecies of house mouse that hitchhiked along with Neolithic colonists as they dispersed across Europe. One of them, the western house mouse, Mus musculus domesticus, this one went along with the uh, colonists around the Mediterranean, while the other one, Mus musculus musculus, gets a little redundant, and you could have a sub-variety, <laughs> musculus musculus, go on forever. But anyway, this one went along on the northern dispersal route, and they show up at different points in Greece. And what Katerina is able to do, and these are you know, just tiny little remains of very closely related species, but she's able to use this new, very powerful t technique of geometric morphometrics, sort of 3D imaging and, and analysis, very complicated statistics, to do a shape analysis of their jaws, 
uh, to figure out these subspecies, as well as ancient DNA analysis. And then she uses small volume radiometric AMS dating to very precisely date them, sometimes within 60 years, so that she can use these guys to track the period, the timing, and the routes of these different dispersal processes. Now, the colonization of the Aegean Islands by these guys not only included their bringing their domestic crops and livestock, but they also brought with them uh, other native plants and animals that made up their homelands, basically transporting their entire ecosystem to these various islands. And Nelly Foca Cosmetatu has been awarded funding to look at this process on the island of Mykonos. And what she's been particularly interested in is looking at how these colonists sort of fine-tune this economy and their ecosystems to meet the requirements of these new islands through a process of what she calls landscape learning. It really gives you an appreciation for the ingenuity of people back, you know, 10,000 years ago. Now, by far, the most of the projects that we funded have date to the Bronze Age, uh, the period that I'm sure all of you know here saw, sees the rise and the fall of the first major civilizations in Greece, beginning with the island-based civilizations, the Cycladic and the Minoan, and then capped off by the mainland Mycenaean civilization at the end of the Bronze Age. And once again, Wiener Lab has been active in, in tackling central problems of this important period. We've had a large number of studies of human skeletal materials that have looked at the questions of the development of differential status, the health of these populations, the origin of social inequality in the Bronze Age, beginning with studies of sort of the roots of this process in the early Cycladic uh, periods, looking at the development and changes in the corporate identity, post-marital residency patterns, inheritance patterns, patterns that go on in the early bronze, looking at the development of increasingly um, unequal access to basic resources and, and goods um, in the uh, Middle Helladic period. And then we have this wonderful array of studies of Mycenaean skeletal populations, with the most recent of these being that of Caitlin Stiles, who is working on human remains from rock-cut chamber tombs in central Greece, just a little bit outside the Mycenaean homeland. And what, what Caitlin is doing in this really remarkable study is she's using the sort of standard bioarchaeological approaches of doing aging and sexing and so on and looking at disease and combining that with isotope studies, chemistry of the bone, looking at diet and place of origin and ancient DNA to try to address the question of whether the people buried in these rock-cut tombs that look like Mycenaean tombs with Mycenaean trade goods are actually Mycenaeans themselves that have either come there through conquest or colonization, or perhaps even more interestingly, whether these are locals that are trying to enhance their status within the sort of, you know, pecking order uh, in the local region by embracing the trappings of the big city folks to the south. Um, I don't know what identity these two guys over on the um, left are trying to do, but it's really quite fearsome. Craft production, specialized economies, trade, other really major problems here. And here again, Wiener Lab has had studies of metallurgy, 
um, at, on Samothrace at the junction of Anatolia and, and southeastern Europe. Again, looking at this change in, and dispersal of these technologies. We've had studies of chipstone tools that have been successful in not only locating the source of the materials that these tools are made of, but looking at the societal structures that govern the access to this very basic material, very critical material, and how this changed through time. We've had some wonderful studies of the technology behind the frescoes that are so emblematic of the days, finding a remarkably um, precise and standardized, almost pedantic degree of of standardization in technique that went behind the artistry of these amazing creations. And on a more prosaic level, Marta Lorenzen is currently studying, or actually deconstructing, a basic construction material, uh, looking at the materials uh, used and the ways of manufacture of mud bricks, which are the quintessential building blocks of Bronze Age society. A study of faunal remains from Bronze Age kenosis has succeeded in tracking the development of a specialized pastoral economy on the, on the island, as well as looking again at differentials in status in access to basic foodstuffs. Now, a parallel study by Calla McNamee that's currently going on is looking at starch residues. And these are little blobs of starch that amazingly survive in the nooks and crannies of groundstone tools that can be recovered, analyzed, and identified once again on the basis of shape to species. So Cala is looking at plant use in the Bronze Age, and again, how these massive changes in socio-political, economic specialization, how that affected something basic like agriculture. And now we're currently funding Peter Tompkins, who's doing a study of ceramic vessels in Crete, looking at the production of these and how that's organized and the trade in these. So once again, you see all of these different studies, different materials, different techniques, different questions coming together to approach common problems. Now, the role of cataclysmic events in the collapse of Bronze Age society, as most of you know, has been a long-term area of inquiry, especially the eruption of the Thera volcano and its proposed role in the collapse of Minoan society. Now this begins with the pre-eruption earthquakes that led to the cataclysmic eruption of the Thera volcano and then proceeded on to the massive tsunamis that spread across the Mediterranean basin all the way reaching the shores of Crete and then coming in and wiping out Kenosis and the Minoan civilization and according to some driving the mythical city of Atlantis to the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea, or so the story goes. Well, the Wiener Lab has succeeded in painting maybe a little bit less colorful, but I think much more scientifically grounded uh, understanding of the magnitude of this eruption uh, and its impact with especially the work of Floyd McCoy. Again, measuring this impact, looking at its major change um, that it made in the whole configuration of Thera, modern Santa Torini, uh, looking and tracing its ash flows as it raced across the Mediterranean as well as its tsunamis. Now dating the Thera eruption has been a subject of one might say sometime explosive debate, one in which Mr. Wiener has played a leading and very catalytic role. Um, and that's the explosion right there. 
Uh, sorting out which of the two dating schemes that have been proposed for this major uh, geologic event, it's not just a dry academic exercise because it's got real importance for figuring out the timing of seminal events in the late Bronze Age and how these events in Egypt and in, in the Aegean and in Mesopotamia and in the Levant, how they all affected each other. And doing this and being able to sort this out means we cannot afford to privilege any one source of evidence, but rather we have to understand all the strengths and weaknesses of the various evidentiary arguments that are brought to bear on the question. And these involve the Egyptian chronologies that are based on pottery types, um, astrochronological associations, kingless genealogies, being able to both precisely identify and source and date particles that are found in Iceland, Green, um, Iceland, uh, Greenland ice cores, that's the way it goes, Greenland ice cores um, that are thought to originate from Thera, being able to sort out these very complicated wiggles in the radiocarbon calibration curve that are known to be caused by um, variations in atmospheric carbon, being able to compensate for the reservoir effect of gaseous emissions on dates in places like Thera that are so volcanically active, and being able to understand the very complicated life histories of things like long-living trees and short-living annuals and their effect of dates that are then obtained from wood charcoal and from carbonized seeds. All of this then underscores the importance of bringing together historical information, archaeological information, and scientific information and having these all come to bear on really significant questions. Now, the advent of writing is a watershed in antiquity. It really uh, is a, a, a huge threshold. And in Greece, it begins with the largely appearance of the largely undecipherable linear A at about 2500 BC, linear B at about 1450, um, and then with the Greek showing up uh, a little bit later after the Bronze Age collapse in the Greek Dark Ages, Latin at about 75 BC, and then we've, I think, more recently have reverted to a very rudimentary and primitive, more pictorial script at about AD 2000. <laughs> now, this advent of literacy and writing is, as I say, a major threshold that separates prehistory from history. And according to some more classical, classical orientations, this is really a time in which the written record takes over as the primary source of evidence about the past. And so this view would say that, well, you know, while the scientific study of material culture for prehistoric periods, I mean, that can be really valuable. Once you get written texts, this data becomes really either redundant or largely irrelevant. Well, I would say that the history of support from the American School and the Wiener Lab for scientific studies of materials from these historical periods really give lie to that preconception, and that these have tackled all of the major problems that really relate to these historic periods, and again, importantly, have underscored the value of adding the scientific record uh, to the historical text to provide a fuller picture of the past. And I'll use the... Uh, American school excavations at Corinth and the Agora to really underscore this, to really show the intersection of science and the classics. A great example of this are the excavations at the sanctuary of Demeter and Corey, 
uh, that began in the 60s and 70s, and they encountered a number of rooms, many of which were probably dedicated to banqueting. Um, and based on the literary sources from the time, and the apparent lack of animal bones from these um, contexts, which may not be surprising since animal bones weren't systematically recovered, but the, the perception then of the sort of nature of these feasts had them being kind of dull, colorless, vegetarian affairs, sort of like having a whole feast based on tofu. Now, the American School and Corinth and ASCA came together in the 1990s and wanted to test this presupposition with new excavations in two of these banqueting areas that applied rigorous screening and wet sieving uh, and geoarchaeological work to really then examine this. The work of Paul Goldberg looked at the microstratigraphy from these excavations and it was able to give firm context to the plant and animal remains collected from them. The study of the plant remains by Julie Hansen was really able to broaden the understanding of the vegetable part of the banquets, showing that they ate a real wide variety of pulses, chickpeas, peas, lentils, sounds like the Mediterranean diet today, as well as a lot of fruit, uh, grapes, figs, and most provocative of all, given the patron goddess of this sanctuary, pomegranates. The study of the animal bones from this, um, these excavations showed that these people supped on tasty baby pigs, as well as a wide variety of uh, marine resources, sea urchins, oysters, and hundreds of these tiny little fish, maybe even eaten this way, or perhaps as a sauce, like the garum eaten by Romans in later times. In addition, they found a number of these knuckle bones. Now, they weren't quite this pretty, but you get the sort of idea. Um, that are lower bones from sheep, they're, they're non-meat-bearing bones, but they were used in antiquity, including it by the ancient Greeks, as gaming pieces, in, in, as, as dice, and actually are currently used um, throughout the Near East uh, to this day as those. So all of this put together, again, paints a much more lively picture of these feasts, and a feast that I think all of us would much rather go to. Um, another example of this is the work of Michael McKinnon, who rummaged through the storage rooms uh, from the excavations at the Athenian Agora, looking for animal bones from the excavations there that date back to the mid-30s up into the mid-90s. And what he was able to do in his very long article recently published in Hesperia was really, um, again, disprove the preconception based on epigraphic resources that meat consumption was very limited, very few species, and only eaten in ritual contexts. Because what he was able to show that beyond sacrificial lambs, ancient Athenians enjoyed uh, meat from a wide variety of domestic species as well as wild species that are seldom if ever mentioned in the text. And what this then shows us is that there are whole categories, vast categories, of the economy of ancient Greece that is not mentioned in the text that don't affect the elites that might be more expected to be keeping track of these. That instead, it's the sectors of the economy for the hoi polloi um, that are entirely missing. But their activities are reflected in the places like the trash dumps of the Athenian agora. Another revisiting of an old story is Mariah Liston's uh, reanalysis or analysis of human remains from the ancient um, Athenian agora. Now, excavations in the 1930s discovered a well there with an astonishing, I think it's something like 350 infants thrown into the, into the well, along with a number of dog skeletons. 
uh, into the well. And this evoked these really dramatic images of mass infanticide and um, ritual sacrifice of babies. It's sort of gruesome. While Mariah's work showed that in some of these infants did indeed die violent deaths, and there's a traumatic head injury on this one. But others of them, and most of them, died of either disease or infection, and it really gives you a much, I think, closer and, and really kind of sad picture of the challenges faced by Athenian families, given the sanitation and disease vectors that were present at the time. She also found evidence of the violent um, of victims of the violent Hurlian raid in 267 BC. And here again, she's taking um, and re-enlivening an old story based on what she's learning from the dead. Now, all of these great projects that I've talked about tonight have come to us from researchers that have written well-crafted proposals and their work has been selected for support by the Wiener Lab Committee, which I'm honored to chair. But this year, we've developed a new fellowship that is really, I think, ushering a new era for the Wiener Lab. And these are our programmatic fellowships. So rather than someone coming to us with the project, we're going to develop the projects. And the projects will come out of the Wiener Lab, out of the uh, ASCA field-directed projects at the Agora or at Corinth, or from any of the affiliated projects with the American School. And the idea here is to give the Wiener Lab a role in actually shaping the research that's done under its auspices and to better situate the archaeological sciences more deeply within the projects of the American school um, and to, again, promote the archaeological sciences more broadly. The first of these fellowships has been awarded to Elena Provedoru for her work on the 1500 skeletal remains from the Phaleron Cemetery, which is this amazing cemetery outside of Athens that was used from the 8th to the 5th centuries BC, um, and which saw incredible events in the formation of the Athenian state. But I won't steal Takis' thunder. He's going to talk to you about this. So this new era is also ushered in by the creation of our new lab, uh, which is this amazing new facility that you see behind this, you on this slide uh, with incredible equipment um, and uh, brand spanking new labs and so on. So it's going to allow us to take these four areas of our focus and really expand upon the work that we've been able to do to really broaden that and further the impact. In addition, under the new leadership of, well, I guess it's not so new now, two years now, right, Takis? Takis has been really busy, not only being content with minding his own store, but he's been looking outward and reaching out to other archaeological sciences institutions around the world, both, as I say, locally in Athens, uh, in Greece, in the Aegean, and then much farther afield. So here what we're doing is expanding the reach of the Wiener Lab, and we're now making taking the Wiener Lab basically on the road and making it a center for archaeological sciences, not only in Greece, not only in the Eastern Mediterranean, but for the world in general. So I would say this is a bright new era for the Wiener Lab uh, and the archaeological sciences in the Greece. Uh, it, thanks to the wonderful work of, of uh, Malcolm Wiener and the support that he's given us over the years and our other many benefactors, over these 25 years, we've been able to do transformational research on the history and the prehistory of Greece. 
and with our new laboratory, our newish director, and with the continued support of the American School, and I hope for many of you here, I think we can safely say that the best is yet to come. So thank you. You are very much needed for this illuminated review of the activities of the lab the last 25 years. It's my turn to welcome you and thank you for coming tonight. Uh, as Mindy very nicely presented over its 25 years, the Malcolm Wiener Laboratory for Archaeological Science of the, class, of the American School of Classical Studies at Athens has become a leading center for archaeological science dedicated to the study of the Greek world from the deeper history to the present day. In these directions, in this direction, and thank you to the vision and the generosity of Malcolm Wiener, the new Wiener Lab has become the ideal host for interdisciplinary international projects. The new cutting-edge analytical equipment give us the ability to host broad collaborative projects, more ambitious and of longer term. With the new facilities in place, we will be one of the very few labs in Greece that can undertake large-scale projects in the study of ancient human and animal-born plant remains and bioenvironmental and landscape reconstruction. The Delta Phaleron Cemetery, with its more than 1,500 burials, is a good example of such a large-scale collaborative research project. During construction of the Nyarchos Foundation Cultural Center at the Delta of Phaleron in Attica. The Department of Antiquities of the Hellenic Ministry of Culture excavated a large part of this very important ancient cemetery. The site has attracted the attention of the international community, and the latest finds were considered among the 10 most important archaeological discoveries worldwide, worldwide of 2016 according to the Archaeology magazine. In 2015, an international collaborative project was established for the analysis of the human skeletal remains from Fallen. A specialized team of bioarchaeologists, forensic anthropologists, archaeologists, and conserva conservators was assembled for this purpose under the direction of Professor Jane Baxter of the Arizona State University. The Fallero project will take place at the new Winner Lab that can provide the necessary infrastructure, including analytical equipment, as well as the scientific personnel for a project of such a scale. I will now present you some information about the site. The cemetery of Falleron is located on the northwestern coast of Attica, about six kilometers south of, of Acropolis, of the Acropolis, at the area of uh, the Falleron Bay, which served as the main port of the ancient Athens before Piraeus was established. The Phaleron Cemetery consists of hundreds of burials, and it is the largest funerary site ever recovered in Attica using modern excavation techniques. The cemetery, the cemetery was used for the late 8th to the early 5th century BC extending from the very beginning of Athens formation as a unitary polish to the devastating assault 
on Attica, a neighboring police by the Persians in 480 BC. This period was a time of momentous societal, societal shifts and developments. Sorry. Uh, witnessing the establishing and subsequent reform of the first governmental institutions, early codifi codification of formal laws, the laying out of the first consecrated sanctuaries of the major gods of Attica, the introduction of many significant festivals and other ritual events, and the construction of the first temples and other landmark monuments. By the time that our cemetery fell out of use, the Athenians had recently committed themselves to a new politia, or a way of life, one they called democratia. The Fatherland Cemetery shows great variation in burial practices. Most burials were recovered from shallow pits within the soft sandy soil. The second largest category are burials of infants and young children within large jars. Given the large number of burials of young jewelines so commonly under, underrepresented in ancient cemeteries, the Fatherland Cemetery allows us to investigate infancy and childhood in antiquity very important by highly contested aspects of ancient Greece. Some burials consist of primary cremation, wherein the burning and the successive burial of the body took place in the same location. Other types of burials include ceramic urns and simple graves lined with vertical slabs. The unique case of a skeleton buried within a wooden boat used as a coffin that was preserved in its entirety illustrates the great preservation condition at the site and underlie, underlie interment diversity. One of the many strengths of the Phaleron Bioarchaeological Project consists of the large number of deviant burials that show evidence of for captivity, violent death, and or execution. Prone burials are scarce in the Greek world and are generally considered an indication of unusual circumstance, circumstances of death or punishment. Deviant burials include mass burials consisting of several individuals wherein the skeletons were found with their hands tied behind their backs, as you can see in this image. Or, in another case, suckled together at their wrists. The number and variation of deviant burials with evidence of violent deaths raise the question of Phaleron Cemetery being used also for executed captives, slaves, or even pirates as a potter's field for the unwanted of the ancient city. Death sentences seem to have been relatively frequent, frequent in ancient Greece, used for a wide range of offenses, including sacrilege and treason. However, the relevant sources are brief and scarce. Thus, the groups of deviant burials open up further interpretation for the Phaleron Cemetery as a burial ground for the unwanted or, and or stigmatized, including political victims at a time of major sociopolitical unrest. The Phaleron Cemetery indeed constitutes a rare phenomenon in the archaeological record. The lack of elaborated 
all effort of elaborate burials, funerary monuments, inscriptions, and intracemetery organization points to the presence of a lower status individuals, largely invisible in the historical and archaeological records. Thus, the simple, generally non-furnished pit burials at Faleron allows us to go beyond the leads and thus addresses issues related to the commoners, who usually go unnoticed. The coastal location of the cemetery and the faction of Faleron as the port of the ancient city of Athens might in fact reflect a port community of diverse backgrounds and origins, possibly incorporating locals and foreigners, sailors and traders. Finally, the significance of this project extends far beyond the study of the antiquity. The results will be made available to scholarly and public audience and can serve as a model for the management of large-scale bioarchaeological studies. A wide array of scientific methods will be implemented, such as radiocarbon dating and biodistance, isotopic and anti-DNA analysis, to examine the absolute chronology, the biological and genetic structure, the dietary practices, and geographic origins of the different burial groups at Phaleron in relation to mortuary variability. Thus, the interpretation of the Phaleron Cemetery will provide us with a holistic reconstruction of everyday life in ancient Athens that includes the non-elite social strata. This is the first project to systematically analyze and synthesize burial patterns by archaeological remains and historical sources for archaic Athens. Apart from its scholarly merit, this study will foster collaboration between American universities and the Wiener Laboratory and will serve educational purposes for both in the USA and in Greece by training young scholars in high-end bioarchaeological methodologies while offering unique opportunities for the study of the classical world. This is the Phaleron project, the type of collaborative schemes that Wiener Laboratory has been lately pursuing in order to fulfill its vision, to become a preeminent center for archaeological science dedicated to the study of the ancient Greek world. Thank you. <laughs>